This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for hanging out with me today. I just finished talking with Quincy Carroll. Quincy is a writer who came out in 2015 with his first novel called Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside, and this was published with Ink Shares. Now, what the novel does is it takes us into a context where uh, a bunch of expats are teaching English in China at a school in Ningyuan, which is in Hunan. And it introduces us to a number of major characters, and you'll hear us talking about those in the moments to come. Um, Two of them are teachers, Thomas Guillard and and a younger man named Daniel, um, who kind of play off of each other and represent different ways of understanding what the experience of an expat teaching English in this kind of environment in China might be. We meet some of their students, um, we meet some of their colleagues, And what the book winds up being is not just a story, um, a a fictionalized account, right? A novel about um, expats teaching English, living in China, dealing with everything that comes with that, but also a really sensitive reflection on experiences of dislocation, um, on what home means and what it can feel like to make a decision to take yourself away from home, put yourself somewhere new, and try to figure out not only what's happening now, but then what comes next. Um, So it's a really interesting book. Um, You'll hear us in the course of the conversation talk not just about what's happening in the story, but also talk about Quincy's, um, uh, his own engagement with China, his process and practice as a writer, um, what kind of feedback he's gotten on the book, and also what's coming next for him. So thank you so much for listening. With that, I'll let you get to the conversation, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Quincy Carroll about his new novel, Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Quincy, and thanks so much for writing such an interesting book and for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm looking forward to this. I am as well. Thank you so much for having me. So, Quincy, we'll start with the traditional question for the channel. Um, Why China? What brought you to an interest in China, working with it, um, writing about it? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Boston. Uh, My father was a white American, my mother uh, Asian American. So every Saturday morning, I would go to Cantonese school with my sister um, from the age of about five until I graduated middle school. Um, so Chinese culture was always somewhat involved in my life. Uh, when I got to college, I studied Mandarin for three years at Yale. Um, but when I graduated from college, I quit my job and ended up moving to China. I was working in investment banking for about four days before I realized it wasn't (laughs) what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up moving to China teaching English there for two years and uh, starting to write and read more. Uh, But my initial 
motivations for moving there were to develop my language proficiency and also just gain the experience of living abroad. Um, but so all that's really to say that Chinese culture was something that was familiar to me, but also somewhat unfamiliar from a young age. Um, and it was really interesting as I grew up to see how something that I had always considered kind of uncool, um, having to go to Chinese school on Saturday morning when my friends were watching cartoons or, you know, playing little league, um, how that ended up becoming, uh, more prominent as China ascended onto the world stage and the relationship with the West began to change. So Quincy, this is a novel, um, and a work of fiction. So let's talk a little bit about that. What brought you to, um, first of all, to a practice of writing fiction, and then what brought you to a practice of writing fiction specifically about China and the Chinese context? Sure. Um, so I'd always been a pretty voracious reader from a young age. Uh, when I quit my job and moved to China, that only got worse. <laughs> I was spending pretty much all of my free time reading. Um, and I wanted to find a way to articulate to myself this experience that I was going through, not only as a Westerner abroad in China, but also just as um, a young man entering into adulthood. So for me, it was a way to talk myself through what was going on um, and also just to try to relate an experience that I thought was fairly unique to a larger audience and um, something that I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. So why a novel? Right, And I, well, and I asked that, right, because it's uh, writing fiction about – particular context can take any number of forms, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so writing a novel, um, why this particular form? Why did this feel like the right form to tell the story you wanted to take, to tell? So when I first started writing, uh, right before I moved to China, I was experimenting with short stories just because I think that's a pretty logical uh, starting place given that I had never written fiction seriously before. Uh, and I kept finding that no matter what I was writing about, it just took me forever to, A, figure out what it was about, and B, also to reach some kind of uh, ending that felt satisfying. So the more and more I wrote, um, I think it just naturally came to me that whatever I was working on was going to have to become a novel. And I still have uh, on my old computer a few early drafts of Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside, which began as just a short story uh, from the first chapter set in the bus station that Thomas Guillard uh, finds himself in at the, at the very beginning. Uh, but yeah, at that time, it didn't feel complete. I didn't really know where it was going. I didn't know what I wanted to say. And uh, so over the course of the three and a half years I was working on the book, um, the novel seemed like it became the, the logical path to take. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned Guillard, right? This is one of a number of main characters um, in the book. And so now that we have a little bit of a sense of how you came to this, let's start taking listeners into the book itself a little bit. Can you um, describe for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to become readers, um, basically the scope and the setting of where we are, right? We are in or we're going to at the beginning of the novel, um, Ningyuan and Hunan. Um, we meet this character, Guillard. He meets this other character, Bella. Who's Guillard? Um, and uh, where are we at the beginning of the novel? Sure. Uh, so the first chapter opens up in the South Bus Station in Changsha, the capital of Hunan province. And it focuses in on Thomas Guillard, who is a 60-something-year-old uh, 
relatively long-time expat in China. He's jaded, cynical, um, more than a little disdainful towards the Chinese, Chinese culture, China itself. And he's trying to get a bus ticket to a remote rural town by the name of Ningyuan, um, where he's heard about a job opening to teach English. And um, it's implied and then later um, followed up on that he has run out of prospects in Changsha in the city. And so this is where he's chosen to, to go. And he runs into a young girl named Bella, who is a precocious middle school student, coincidentally from the town of Ningyuan, who has a very strong fascination and interest uh, with Western culture and learning English. And so she becomes uh, his way of getting onto a bus, even though the tickets are sold out and he can't find a way there himself. So when we first meet Guillard, and, and actually for quite some time thereafter, he's not a super likable guy, right? I mean, he's, mm-hmm. not, he's not like a super sympathetic character, but there's a kind of humanizing of him that happens. And the character um, is really complex, I think, over the course of the novel, and we can talk about that. Um, but we met Guillard, um, we've met Bella a little bit, we'll continue to talk about her. They get to Ningyan, and we meet a character that's sort of a kind of sort of sort of foil for Guillard, and this is Daniel. Um, if not a foil, he's definitely, um, he stands in contrast to Guillard, even though he's also a kind of expat teacher of English at the same school. So tell us a little bit about Daniel. Sure. So Daniel has already been living in Ningyuan for one year by the time Guillard comes into town with Bella, mm-hmm. and he's well-liked at the school. He speaks uh, fairly decent Mandarin as opposed to Guillard, who really doesn't speak it at all, more than a few sentences here and there or phrases he's picked up. And Daniel, whereas Guillard is more jaded and cynical about his uh, time in China and the way he interacts with those around him, Daniel is, you could say at the beginning, a little naive and overly idealistic in the way that he sees his coming to China and his purpose there. Um, So while I wouldn't say the idea of a protagonist and antagonist is as clear-cut in this novel Mm -hmm. as most – I decided to open with Thomas, who's more the antagonist, just because that was the type of character that really stood out to me when I first moved to China, um, and the one that I I thought was the most interesting and that I wanted to spotlight. So once I had him and I got him traveling to Ningyuan, I needed to, as a writer, you know, think of some way to present tension uh, with him. So Daniel ended up being like you said, a foil at the beginning, but then as the novel progresses, they kind of draw closer to each other. They do. Um, and so the, you know, we won't go chapter by chapter and we won't reveal, um, a lot of the really interesting things that are happening for Guillard, for Daniel, for Bella, um, for some of the other teachers and students at the school and from some of the other um, people that they come in contact with. But there is a sense that the, the action kind of built, right? We get to know the school. We get to know some of the students. Um, we get to understand a little bit about the relationship. And they're very different kinds of relationships that Guillard is having with um, his Chinese students and that Daniel is having with his Chinese students, although they do have Bella in common, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so t- can you talk a little bit about 
Bella, right? We, you've already described her as this youngest girl that Guillard meets at the train station right at the beginning, um, and she becomes a way for him to kind of get to Ningyuan, um, but her character becomes really central um, for how we understand both of these men and, and how we you know, understand uh, well beyond them. So tell us a little bit about what you think is really significant for us to understand about Bella. So Bella, in the first chapter when Guillard meets Bella, he learns that she the reason she's in Changsha is that she's been traveling around uh, the province with her aunt and uncle, who are fairly well off, and uh, she's on her way back to Ningyuan uh, over summer break. And the reason I wanted to incorporate that aspect into Bella's personality or her background is that you meet a lot of these students in China, or at least I did when I was teaching English, who really seek you out as a foreigner and uh, look to spend a lot of time uh, just to absorb foreign culture for whatever they take it as, like a sponge. And um, one part that I wanted to bring to Bella's personality was that she sees herself, yes, as one student in a school of thousands, but also as somewhat unique, someone who has more opportunities than others, someone who sees a brighter future for herself. And so um, while she's the vehicle to bring Daniel and Guillard together and create tension throughout the novel, um, she was also a character. I wanted to have a Chinese character in the book who readers could really get to know as well. And even if she's taxing at times and a little annoying, um, she forces Daniel and Guillard to interact with each other, but also kind of show how they uh, perceive their Chinese students around them and the environment. Mm-hmm. And how would you characterize how Guillard um, and Daniel perceive and interact with the, the Chinese students and the Chinese environment around them? Because it's, it's quite different, but we mm. see a, a somewhat of a convergence, at least some bit of a convergence, right, happening uh, toward the middle of the book. Yes. Um, So Guillard's certainly very dismissive and condescending in the way that he interacts with the people around him in China. Um, One one of the reasons why this type of character appealed to me so much was that when I first arrived in China, um, you know, I, I was part of a cohort of maybe 60 other volunteer teachers Uh, all of whom were very curious, very um, open-minded, and very engaging with the people around them. But then there was another subset of expats uh, around China who I met in bars, out on the town, um, in stations, places like more public spaces. And it almost seemed like there was this colonial era mindset in the way that they saw their position in China or a developing country. And that just seems so anachronistic to me. So like you said, Guillard is not the most sympathetic character, but um, that was why I found him so interesting. And I think that comes through in the way that he interacts with Bella, interacts with his other students. Whereas Daniel, um, at the beginning of the novel, he's very well liked. He tries to present as many opportunities as he can for his students to practice their English with him. He tries to encourage them as much as he can. But then even towards the the middle to the end of the book, he starts to, you know, get ticked off by Bella, always trying to uh, 
pull him away or get him to do things with her. And uh, I think that pulls over more into his uh, attitude towards the school and the other students in England. I mean, one of the things about Guillard that's really, um, that for me was really striking as a reader is that he does come across, right, at, from the beginning as um, not such a sympathetic character. He's constantly, like, drooling over women. Like, when we uh, are reading the chapters that are um, focusing on him, he's he's constantly objectifying women, right? It's just mm-hmm. really hard to connect with, um, at mm-hmm. least. But at the same time, um, so there's a, a pretty major event that happens um, midway through the novel um, that is very, at least for a, a portion of time, right, is very transformative for him. And mm-hmm. we see him um, in a way that really, I think, humanizes him and turns, at least for me, turns my engagement with him as a character from... Ugh, you know, like, stop it. Stop looking at the way to like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like this is a really sad and lonely person, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think that's, for me, that was my experience of him. He's really, he seems really lonely. Um, and I think any of us who have felt that, right, who have felt a sense of dislocation or a kind of absence of a, a sense of home or, you know, who are mm-hmm. struggling with that sense of what home is, where home is, have any experience living in an environment um, where you're not, right, a, a kind of a fluent speaker. Um, there is um, something about watching that happen to him that is actually very sympathetic in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, would you do you want to talk about that part of his character at all? Sure. How how you understand it and what you want us to. Um, that's the wrong question. Not what you want us to, but like kind of how you engage with and understand um, Thomas uh, for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one criticism I've heard a few times about the novel is that uh, Giard isn't given enough of a backstory. We aren't told his reasons for coming to China. Uh, the failures that are alluded to back home um, really aren't detailed or uh, drawn out as, as they are for Daniel. Oh, and, oh, I, oh but I mean, I'm going to interrupt. I don't think we need to okay. do that, right? I mean, exactly. So that's where I was going with yeah. that. So one of the reasons why I didn't want to do that was because uh, this character, Guillard, is just someone who there is nothing for back home. Um, n- there's nothing good in his past, and he has come to China and... Uh, decided to put his foot down and make himself into exactly what he wanted to be. However, that turns out to be a very lonely, isolated man. And so as the the novel goes on and he's uh, put up against Daniel, I think that comes through. And I'm hoping that, uh, like like you said, as readers get to know him a little more, they'll start to see that, well, you know, maybe this is just someone who took a few wrong turns in life and they built off of each other until they got out of control and his life has just spiraled to a point um, where he, he is in some sense uh, a sympathetic character. And you could actually, in a way, especially once um, the middle of the novel action happens and I don't want to kind of ruin it, right. <laughs> for people. <Okay. laughs> um, so I won't, I won't mention that you, you, sh- you can feel free to talk about the specifics if you want to, I'm not going to name them, but especially at that pivot point, you could almost see how Daniel could turn into Giard. 
you know, you can sort of see that as a possibility. Um, you know, Daniel starts off really likable. He's got lots of tattoos. Like he's the cool guy you want to hang out with, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I were one of the students at the school, he would totally be the person I would want to be hanging out with and admiring. Um, and then, you know, his behavior also, um, starts getting a little bit more complicated, uh, about the midway through the novel and you can see him struggling, um, Mm -hmm. more so at least, um, toward, the end, the you know middle to the end of the story. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about that, and, and kind of in a way that's maybe parallel to how we were talking about the the nature of the Guillard character and his transformations? How do you understand the nature of Daniel and his transformations in the story? Sure. Um, so, like I said, uh, the Guillard archetype was one that really stood out to me when I first uh, sat down in China, but the naive, change the world kind of volunteer type uh, was also someone that I saw on every street corner or, um, you know, every part around Changsha when I was there for orientation. And in saying that, I don't mean to, you know, talk down to anyone because I think Giard and uh, Daniel both come from places inside of myself. And like I was saying, one of the reasons I had for writing this book was trying to figure out for myself you know, where exactly did I fall on the spectrum of these two types of expats in China? And how did I want to engage with the country? Um, So for Daniel, you know, he starts out as a likable, cool uh, foreign teacher at the school. But then as time goes by, I think he and the reader both start to question his deeper uh, purposes or motivations for coming to China. Um, and, you know, that's not always the prettiest thing, uh, especially when you're you're younger and in a foreign country and you're trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you're younger and you're not in a foreign country and you're trying to figure things out, hell, even when you're older and you're not mm-hmm. in a foreign country or you are and you're trying to figure things out, like being a human being is a complicated, messy freaking process, you know? Um, so I think, but I think one of the things that really works in the book is that there's, you know, once we get to know these characters, there's not a kind of moralizing, you mm-hmm. know, um, you, you get to understand them as the complex people enough that when they are making decisions that you, you watch and you read and you're like, Oh, do you really want to do that? Or no, don't do that. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're being judgmental about it as an author, at least from my perspective as a reader. Thank you. No, that's great to hear. I mean, one of the messages I wanted uh, readers to come away with after finishing the book was that, you know, life, like you said, is complicated, it's messy, it's uncertain. Um, And one of the great reasons uh, that China worked for this book was that, you know, I wanted people to really think about their privilege and uh, the fact that you need to be humble in an increasingly globalized world. Uh, Think about what what do you want? How do you want to interact with others? Um, So, that was kind of my, I guess, subconscious drive for writing the book that I only figured out towards the end. But, um, you know, also I wanted to introduce readers to what is it like to live as a foreign teacher in China and just reflect the true nature of it. Because when I was reading a lot of fiction, especially, um, about that subject before and when I was in China, it just didn't seem like there was a lot out there that, um, reflected what I thought was something that resonated with my experience. Well, since we're on this topic, right, the what is it like to be living as a foreign teacher in China, for you, what are you hoping um, is going to be communicated about 
that topic, right? Um, what you want or what you hope readers will understand about what it's like to be um, or to live as a foreign teacher in China that comes out of the book um, that might not have come out um, from other books that you've read that deal with um, a similar or resonant topic? So when I first came to China, a lot of what I had read or was reading at the time were memoirs about uh, teaching abroad in the country. And it seemed like a lot of them made out China to be this quote unquote crazy place or exotic location where as a Westerner, you were something of a big shot or a big fish in a little pond. Um, so really all I was trying to do was present what I thought was a story that remained true to the experience that I had, which is that there are highs, there are lows. Um, you're going to be confused a lot of the time. Things aren't going to make sense. You're always going to feel like a perpetual outsider, no matter how, how hard you uh, try to make inroads with uh, your environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in um, many of us, I don't want to say all of us, but certainly for me, this is true who have gone to China for the first time, right? I mean, I went to China as a graduate student for the first time, never having been there before, mm -hmm. um, you know, plopped down into Beijing, into an intensive language program for the first time. Um, even if you're not teaching, right, as an expat in China, um, even if you're just kind of there trying to live and do something long-term for the first time, that experience of dislocation is can be really, really jarring um, and, like, profoundly jarring in ways that are not exciting and pleasant all the time to experience, you know, and I think being realistic about that um, is important and useful. So let's, we've talked a little bit um, about the characters of the book. We've talked a little bit about um, kind of how they resonate for you as an author. Let's talk a little bit about beginnings and endings. So sure. I want to ask you a little bit about the end of the book, but first let's talk about what's right on the cover, up to the mountains and down to the countryside. How, uh, what's significant about this title, Quincy? How did you come to this and um, where does the title come from? Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside was the name of an economic reform policy under Mao during the Cultural Revolution in which uh, urban elites were sent down to the countryside to learn from the peasants through uh, manual labor. And so when I was thinking of a title for the book, I wanted something that would stand out and that hadn't been used before. Um, and something that would represent the setting of the novel, which I think this does well, given that it takes place in a rural township in uh, the boondocks of Hunan province. Um, but I wanted something that would be interesting to both China watchers and non-China watchers alike. Um, but I think the reason why it works for me, or I think that it works well, um, is that it really represents the soul of the novel. Um, it acknowledges kind of the vicissitudes in life and the themes of being humbled or learning through privation. And um, I also really enjoy the irony of it where when I was in China, myself and a lot of other Westerners like to complain about how life uh, is so hard living in such a uh, un underdeveloped country or things are so tough. But when you really think about the long history that the country has and uh, all of the major events which have happened over the past century, it's really nothing. So that was something I wanted to touch upon in writing about uh, these two Westerners living in China. 
So let's talk about the ending now that we've talked about the beginning. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about your approach to the ending? Um, it's, it's quite ambiguous, right? It leaves us on a quite ambiguous note. So um, for you, what's going on there and what was important um, about ending in that way? When I was writing the book, um, I started out with that scene with Guillard at the bus station, and I probably wrote the first 60% of the book straight through. It just, um, you know, I was feeding off of the excitement. I was living in China at the time of the idea and also just being in this environment and going outside every day. But then when I got a little past halfway, I started to really think about, well, you know, how am I going to bring this to a climax? How am I going to finish the story? And that took me two or three months where I had to just stop writing and start thinking, observing more, taking down notes. Um, and I'm still, as the writer, I'm still not entirely certain that I'm 100% happy with how the climax occurs in the book. But uh, in terms of the ending, I wanted to leave it open-ended because, like I said, there's not really a protagonist or an antagonist in this book. I think Daniel clearly falls to the side of the protagonist and Giard to the side of the antagonist. But um, in the end of the book, I really wanted readers to think, you know, well, where's Daniel headed? What does his future uh, entail? Where is that going? Could he possibly one day end up like Giard? And are his criticisms of Giard um, justified or are they hypocritical? So um, whereas the arc of the book, I'm satisfied with, but I think could maybe be a little bit better. Uh, the ending, I thought, kind of pulled together the themes that I was trying to go for in the book um, nicely. Mm -hmm. And that ambiguity is important then for the work that mm -hmm. you want the book to do. Yes, absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about the significance of changing your process in order to um, come to the kind of ending that you wanted to. For the book. So let's talk a little bit, just very briefly, um, about process a little bit more. Um, as a writer, so those of us who are trying to balance writing with other things in our life, right, well, regardless of what those other things are, um, it's frequently a matter of trying to find time, create a practice for yourself, um, squeeze it in. In any case, um, for me, as someone who also tries to do that, it's really interesting to hear um, how other people manage that, like what your writing process is like, um, how often you write, kind of what just basically what you're doing to put yourself in the space to get this kind of work done. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that, Quincy. What is your process like? When do you write? Um, do you have any um, kind of schedules or rituals around that? And like just what could you share with us in terms of your process as a writer? Sure, yeah. So, um my process and my routine have definitely developed a lot over the past, what is it now, probably nine years that I've been writing. When I first moved to China and was uh, teaching English, I had a lot of uh, free time. Our, our school didn't require us really to uh, give out graded assignments or anything like that. So I would pretty much teach my classes and then I had my off time to myself. Um, so I spent a lot of time writing then and just trying to get a feel for my style or how I wanted to approach writing. And then I was lucky enough to uh, get a scholarship to the MFA program at Emerson College. So I moved back to Boston for two years and enrolled there. Uh, and that really helped me, you know, hone my craft in terms of technical skills. Um, but after two years, I started to get that itch to head back to China again. So 
um, I got in touch with some friends who I had met when I was teaching there, and they uh, introduced me to a Chinese company in Changsha that I work for. And I was lucky enough to have a part-time job where I only had to go in in the afternoons. And I would wake up every morning and write from about uh, 7 or 8 a.m. until noon. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that was very, very fortunate. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to complete the novel uh, were it not for those friends, that company, that opportunity. Um, I moved back to America in 2013 to be with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and we have been living in the Bay Area since then. And I spent the first year here uh, really just trying to piece together work wherever I could to make money. And it was uh, not the most comfortable time, but um, it allowed me to edit the book and get it ready for, to send out um, for consideration. And then I found a job teaching Mandarin um, at a local high school here, which is right down the street from my apartment. So that worked out great. And I spent a year teaching Mandarin full time, um, which was very rewarding and a, a really great way to stay in touch with the language and use it every day. Um, the majority of the students at that high school were Hispanic. So um, it, it was very uh, cool opportunity to be able to teach them Mandarin, even though it was the only language offered at the time. So a lot of them weren't too thrilled about being forced to learn Mandarin. Um, but then last year I took a step back from that full-time position so that I could get back to my, um, routine of writing in the morning and working in the afternoon. So now I tutor some, uh, students from China who are at the high school, uh, helping them with their homework and also, uh, helping them to develop their English skills and also run an after-school program at the middle school that's associated with high school. Is there any, um, in terms of the the research or the reading that you do for your work and your writing, is there any writing um, about China, any work on China um, that you found particularly useful or inspiring as, as you craft your own work and either for um, the book we're talking about right now or for whatever you're working on presently? Sure. Um, I try to read a good mix of fiction and then just general fiction about all subjects, but then also nonfiction, uh, specifically about China, just to, you know, keep up with that and what's going on there. And um, the book I'm working on at the moment is set half in China, half in America. So, uh, you know, as a source of inspiration. And uh, yeah, there are definitely books that have stood out to me um, over the years. In Manchuria by Michael Meyer. Uh, I really love that book. I think it has a, it's just filled with honest writing. And uh, similar to Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside, it depicts rural life in China, but uh, in the far north, which was totally different from where I was writing about. So I found that very uh, fascinating to be able to see the similarities and differences between the two experiences. Um, Factory Girls by Leslie Chang is another one of my favorites, just a really great portrait of uh, young working class China. And I recently read a book called Wish Lanterns by Alec Ash, which uh, is a portrait of six millennials living in Beijing, but they all come from different parts of the country. Um, and I really like that a lot. I think it gives you a good mood of uh, the younger generation in China and you know their hopes and aspirations. And uh, Alec Ash completely removed himself from the narrative when he was writing about it. So it's less about a Chinese uh, uh, foreign observer uh, in China than it is just about the lives of these six Chinese. 
So tell me about working with Inkshares. This is a crowd-driven publisher, and it's the imprint that your book came out with. Um, and it's, I think, a really, really interesting model for publication. So I'd love to hear about your experiences and your thoughts about um, this mode of publishing. Yeah, it's been a really great experience. Um, when I first started teaching Mandarin in Oakland, I was sending my manuscript out uh, for consideration to agents, publishers, and I did that for probably about three months. I was getting warm feedback, but nothing um, where anyone was willing to commit to publishing it. People would say, we like this, but it's just not really for us. And then I saw a post that one of my uh, former uh, classmates from high school had put on Facebook actually, and his VC firm was backing uh, Inkshares. So that was how I first found out about it. And I went on, checked it out, thought about it for a couple weeks, but then put up a project page describing the novel. And um, then I decided to try to fund it. Um, and I, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity because as a first time writer, especially of literary fiction. It's so hard to get your name out there. And that's really all I was looking for, just a chance to get the story out there and uh, see what people thought. And, uh, you know, at first it was mainly my friends and family helping me get it going, get some momentum. But then past that, it's a $10,000 threshold you have to hit in order to get funding. So I had to reach out to blogs, uh, other authors, things like that to keep the momentum going. And, uh, that, that ended up being really helpful later when the book was actually um, being published to have those contacts. So I think it's a good system, and uh, I couldn't say enough good things about it. So now that the book is out, um, how what kind of feedback are you getting? Like how, um, in your experience so far since the publication, has the book been received? Has there been anything um, kind of surprising about the feedback that you're getting? Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I've been very happy um, with the reception the book has gotten. There's been a lot of people um, who have been willing to give it a read and review it. Um, the Los Angeles Review of Books posted a review on their China blog, um, which was very supportive. And uh, that was kind of like the big review for me that uh, made me feel like, okay, this is this is actually out there now and people know about it. Um, one surprising thing, though, is a lot of people ask me, you know, is it really that bad um, to be a foreigner in China, or are expats in China really that jaded, that cynical? Are, are you that jaded and cynical about their presence in China? And, um, you know, to that, I would just say no. I was just trying to kind of write a story that, mm -hmm. that um, processed my experience and helped me to understand what, what I thought about. Uh, my reasons for coming to China. So I'm not trying to be cynical uh, when I'm talking about foreigners in China, but um, that seems to be uh, the way that more than a few readers have taken it. 
So Quincy, there's of course um, a ton of stuff that we could talk about in all the chapters, but I but I don't want to give that give it away for listeners um, who will hopefully become readers, um, and instead we'll just direct listeners um, to pick up a copy of the book. There's a lot in there um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but given that, is there anything now that we come to our conclusion um, of our conversation that we haven't had a chance to talk about, or you haven't had a chance to mention, but that you'd like to mention? for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? I don't believe so. I think we've covered pretty much all that I can think of for the moment. And so now that the book is out, um, you briefly mentioned something that you're working on right now that takes half or that takes place half in China and half in the U.S. Um, So would you tell us a little bit about that and otherwise um, whatever else you're working on and is inspiring you these days? Sure. Uh, So the book that I'm working on right now, it's another novel, and it's tentatively titled Middle Kingdom, which I know is like one of the most cliched titles for a book about China. But the reason why I like it for now is that, uh, like I mentioned previously, it's half set in China, but through flashback. And then the second half is set in America, um, detailing the life of a returned expat as he's trying to Uh, reintegrate himself into Western society. But the flashback chapters are told through second person. So you get kind of a very uh, intimate look at this character's life in China. And the America chapters are from the third person point of view of others around him, like his family members, his friends, um, and other characters that come into his life while he's there. So it's a different story and different characters than up to the mountains and down to the countryside. But I think thematically it is in some ways a sequel. And there's just one more thing I want to ask you, given that, sure. um, is there anything about your experience writing up to the mountains and down to the countryside, um, that has shaped your experience writing this new book, right? Like, is there anything that you learned from the first process that is significantly, impacting your practice as a writer right now? Well, I think it it taught me how to plan out a story uh, much more efficiently. And it also, most importantly, gave me uh, a sense and understanding of my my rhythm for writing. Um, When I was writing up to the mountains and down to the countryside, I would agonize over each and every sentence. And there were days when it felt like I would never, ever finish the book. But um, since starting the second book, I can already tell on a just sentence to sentence basis, I'm I'm much more assured as a writer and uh, I can feel the flow a little bit better. So while it's still just as hard to put everything together and get the characters right and bring the plot together, uh, at least from a, a technical standpoint, it feels like I'm going a little quicker this time. Well, best of luck with this new book. Thank you so much for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. Um, And it's really been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we will catch you next time.